I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. Hi, everyone, and welcome to our podcast today. As you know, we have been working through the missionary discourse of Matthew, and uh, we're at the very tail end, and we have these two little bitty verses that are now... Well, (laughs) actually three, but... Oh, three, sorry, I I even miscounted. These three little bitty verses um, that are in in the actual Revised Common Lectionary for today. Uh, So Alan's going to help you put these into context. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of people out there thinking, how do you preach a sermon on three verses, you know? But unfortunately, the gospel lesson for this week is surprisingly short. I mean, surprising might be uh, um, uh, putting it mildly. As I mentioned last week, if the Revised Common Lectionary hadn't separated these verses into a separate week, which basically gives us no choice but to treat them separately, I would have discussed them as part of the conclusion to Matthew's missionary discourse as a whole, because that's how they function. They're mm-hmm. part of the conclusion. Yeah. And so instead, I, that's what I'm going to do this week. I'm going to, I'm going to focus on these verses as part of the conclusion to the I, discourse as a whole. I think you have to, and this yeah. is, you know, I'm preparing for this, this week. Um, and that's what I've been doing as well. You just, I yeah. don't know how you pull them out of context. You, you, can't, <laughs> you can't really. All right, so tell us a little bit more about, about the uh, missionary discourse and how this is part of it. Well, and as I've, as I've mentioned over the last couple of weeks, one of the key aspects to understanding Matthew's missionary discourse is to recognize that he has taken gospel traditions about the mission of the Twelve and reshaped them. And so we need to understand this, this story, the traditions mm-hmm. about the missions of the Twelve, they're a well-attested part of the story of Jesus' ministry, but he's taken them and reshaped them in his mm-hmm. own way in order to construct a discourse that is relevant to all the members of his community. In other words, you know, he's not his his primary focus here is not to tell us about what the first disciples, the twelve, did or did not do. As mm-hmm. as we mentioned in our first episode. Matthew doesn't even say anything about how they went out and actually right. carried out Jesus' mission instructions as, as Mark and Luke mm-hmm. does, right? And so, Because that's not his focus. His focus is he's recounting this, these gospel traditions with a view toward um, encouraging his own community right. to put them into practice mm-hmm. as they carry out the mission. And, and part of this also is to, is to demonstrate that this is, you know, um, I forget who it was who said, you know, one of the problems with this discourse is that when you look at the, the instructions, you know, about going out and not taking, a, you know, taking only one bag and, and you know, et cetera, right. et cetera, et cetera, it sa- sounds like it's not really relevant to most people who, who are Christians who reside in, in one place and work in a job right. and, and have families. And, and part of what Matthew is trying to do is, is he's trying to demonstrate that this discourse is relevant to, relevant to all the members of his community. Both those who went out as itinerant mm-hmm. preachers and teachers, as well as those who stayed home, quote yes, unquote. Yes, and, yeah. and that's that's actually really huge, I think, for um, the development of the church. You know, and, and and there are groups out there that says, "Oh, if you are not leaving right. and going out on right. some kind of, you know, itinerant mission, itiner- exactly, then it, you're not really doing mission." Mm-hmm. And that will become important, actually, when I'm talking about the um, the the uh, Protestant Reformation yeah. as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. You know, again, I think it's important also to recognize that that here, right in the middle of Matthew's account of Jesus' ministry in Galilee, 
we have a discourse that Matthew intentionally crafted to encourage the Christian community of his day as a whole to be faithful to carry on the mission that Jesus began. So, you know, it's like we think about the Great Commission as coming at the end of Matthew's gospel, but you kind of have that call to discipleship and mission right here in this chapter. That's Mm -hmm. what this chapter is about. Mm -hmm. So I think that's pretty cool myself. It's really cool because, yeah, I think people could miss that, but this is... It's easy to overlook. Really neat. Well, and and this not only fits Matthew's pattern of collecting Jesus' sayings into unified discourses, as we saw with the Sermon on the Mount, but it also has the effect of creating, at the very least, a kind of double vision. The missionary discourse has one eye on the actual tour when the original apostles extended Jesus' ministry, and one eye on the ongoing work of the Christian community in his day. Mm-hmm. So at least there's a sort of a double yeah. vision, uh, yep, right? exactly. But, you know, you know so, so they were continuing to extend Jesus. The, Matthew's community, not just the apostles, but Matthew's community were continuing to extend Jesus' ministry with their teaching and preaching, with their care for the afflicted and the outcast, as was Jesus' intent for the twelve. Mm-hmm. Now, some would say that this shifts the focus completely away from the original t- mission tour of the 12 mm-hmm. um, to the post-Easter situation of Matthew's community. And I think there are compelling reasons mm-hmm. for that perspective. So at the very least, it's kind of a dual vision, but we might say perhaps Matthew's vision is completely oh, on yeah. his community and the mission that they're going to, the, the fact that they're going to continue to extend Jesus' ministry by their own preaching and by their own care. You know, I'm excited about this, and yet I'm I'm processing it because I'm not sure, and you can correct me, I'm not sure how many people have actually picked up on this because I tend to hear this preached as Jesus at this time, Jesus said this, and, and, and I've heard even that. ignoring, if you mm-hmm. will, the lens of the writer. And I've heard also that. that has a harmonizing effect yep. as well, yep. right? I've heard that. Well, and I think part of it is sort of the historicizing assumption of trying to turn the Gospels into a biography of Jesus mm-hmm. and missing the fact that, you know, the way the Gospel writers handled the Gospel traditions was, you know, yeah, they were passing along the traditions they received. So there is some, 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 some um, authenticity, some trustworthiness here in terms of the veracity of how, how well it conformed, you know, with the facts of, of Jesus' ministry. But that was not the primary point. The primary point was to encourage their communities and to address their communities with the issues that were facing them. And so here, Matthew is taking these traditions about the ministry of the 12, as the mission of the 12 as they extended Jesus' ministry, mm-hmm. and he's reshaping them to focus on you know, the call to right. his own community right. to extend that Which- mission. In a way, I think, then could reflect later Christians as well, if we read that. All Christians. You know, yeah. And which, but, but it, you know, the only way you see that is if you do the comparison, comparative work and compare, you know, it's, you have to have a synopsis of the Gospels. Mm-hmm. You know, mine's a Greek synopsis of the Gospels. You don't have to have a Greek synopsis <laughs> of the Gospels. You, I mean, there are English right. synopsis of the Gospels right. that show this as well. Not a harmony of the Gospels, a synopsis right. a of the synopsis, Gospels. synopsis, very different. When you look at this in a synopsis of the Gospels, you can see the way Matthew is taking and reshaping the traditions that Mark and Luke have used in different ways. And, and that then helps us to to see the focus on Matthew's community mm-hmm. and not necessarily on the 12 in Matthew 10. But mm. I've, I've heard that sermon, especially, yeah. and, and ironically, I've heard that sermon from Matthew 10, right? Yes, correct, correct. And, 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 you know, I think it's because 
one of the things that we lack in our training is this um, sense in which we have to read the synoptic gospels in comparison with one another. Right. Well, I was just processing that and, and, and and I've, I've heard that and I've seen that done. And as a, as a pastor, you know, I, it, I, I guess, I guess there seems to be a simplicity. Oh, we're just going to talk about the 12 and Jesus to the 12. But to me, my congregation needs to hear this mm-hmm. message right. of how this is Oh, shaped. I agree. I agree. And, and again, I, just to follow up, I don't think, I don't think you can see that unless one of your tools yeah. is an, a basic synopsis of the gospels where you can, where you can look at either. And, and this is something, this is a tool I think that needs to be in every pastor's toolbox anytime you're dealing with the synoptic gospels mm-hmm. because you know whether you're dealing with i mean as we've as we've been doing our podcast all along whether we were dealing with mark or matt or luke or matthew we've you know one of the fundamental tools in in dealing with the gospels mm-hmm. especially the synoptic gospels is you've got to be able to compare what the other gospels what the other synoptics are saying mm-hmm. about the same thing and how each individual gospel writer shapes these mm-hmm. gospel traditions mm-hmm. and with matthew I think in this discourse, it's very crucial. It's crucial, you know. And if you if you can't see that for yourself, you're not going to see what's going on. You know, you're not going to see this 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 uh, emphasis on the community, on his community, and how they have a role in in extending Jesus' ministry. And I think so. You know, if you don't have a synopsis of the Gospels, get one. <laughs> get one. Get one. Yes, because it's yes. it's essential. And yes, well, thank you. I. I Right now, I think we already have our heads full of some really, really important information, but we have much further to go. Yes, so yes. Let's um, continue on then and putting this in the context of where we're at in Matthew. Yeah, and so, you know, as I mentioned also, and I'm sort of repeating myself here a little bit, but the primary way that Matthew accomplishes this shift of, com- of, of perspective is by borrowing material from both the Q tradition and from Mark's apocalyptic discourse. As I mentioned last week, Matthew t- 10, 21 through 22, brother will betray brother mm-hmm. to death, father his child, yep. children will rise against parents and have them put to death. You'll be hated for all because of my name, but one, but the one who endures to the end will be saying, all of that is word for word mm-hmm. identical with Mark 13, 12. So, you know, we, we can see right. when it's, when it's that much material, that's word for word identical, we can tell there's some, there's some borrowing right, going on. Right. right. And um, for me, that immediately that language also said that apocalyptic tradition, right? You can mm-hmm, hear that in there. Mm-hmm. So that was, you know, both as part of it. But so, Matthew, but Matthew, puts it in a different context and he uses it in a totally different way. He and, uses it for encouragement yeah. as opposed to right. warning, right? right? So it's it's again, you have to be able to compare them. But it, my question there was I think it's I think it's so natural to to, to take that to forget the context and pull it out because you and I think people do right. all the time or they right. so is there a is there an apocalyptic discourse truth that exists by itself? I would say this. I would say, you know, there is an apocalyptic discourse in all three synoptic gospels. I would say that, you know, Jesus um, likely spoke about the um, impending, especially about the impending destruction of Jerusalem. Um, but I think he also, as we talked about this when we talked about Mark 13, I think he also sort of use the kind of prophetic foreshortening that we've talked about to combine that with the coming of the son of man in the end. And, Mm -hmm. and so, 
you know, I do think that Jesus had something to say about that. I, I do think that all of the gospel writers were influenced by the apocalyptic worldview that was prevalent in that time. Mm-hmm. You know, the Jewish people were a persecuted people and apocalypse, mm-hmm. apocalyptic literature was tailor-made for a persecuted people. Mm-hmm. And so I think they were all influenced in some way by that. And so I don't think every aspect of the apocalyptic discourse goes back to Jesus. Um, but um, I think uh, essentially that that basic warning about you know, there's going to be hardships that you're going to mm-hmm. face, mm-hmm. both in light of the impending destruction of Jerusalem and also in light, also in the face of the coming of the Son of Man, eventually. Well, I guess what's really cool here, then, is that how Matthew reshapes it. Exactly. Um, and exactly. takes it into this kind of encouragement, which is remarkable. Yeah, actually. because in, in Mark, it's about... about um, judgment and it's about warning mm-hmm, uh, warnings mm-hmm. about future sufferings right, but right, Matthew right. has taken it and reshaped it into words of encouragement mm-hmm. to his community about the, the afflictions they're going to encounter as they're carrying out the mission of mm-hmm. extending Jesus ministry very different setting mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. and this is just one example of the way Matthew works with all the material in this discourse and again I would just encourage everybody you know if you don't have the tool of a synopsis of the gospels get one because mm-hmm. then you can compare Matthew's discourse with the parallels in Mark and Luke on your own and you can I mean what I'm saying here isn't you know isn't some deep esoteric knowledge it's obvious right. if you can see the parallels the, the problem is and we can talk about this maybe maybe later today is that um I don't know that our eyes look at it that way. Mm. You know, I think I it's know. a historical Jesus kind of thing that people that people try to jump into, that there's this kind of single truth that is exists. And um, we have to get out of the of the space of expecting the gospels to be sort of an encyclopedia mm-hmm. article outlining the life of Jesus. They are not. They are kerygma. They are preaching. Right. They are gospel. They are euangelion. Mm-hmm. You know, they are proclamation. And as proclamation, just as we take scripture passages and um, try to use them in a way that is going to build up our congregations every week. So the gospel writers took the traditions about Jesus mm-hmm. and shaped yeah. them in a way yeah. that would build up their communities. And we need to have that in a quotation and we need to put <laughs> <laughs> No, I think that's, uh, it's very, it's very helpful. Um, and it reminds me of some of the discussions I've had this week with different mm. folks. And um, I really appreciate the, really how you just it had said that so succinctly. So thank you. you All right. So let's, let's move on into this then. Um, um, I'm not sure where we're at. So right. again, yeah, I mean the, the, you know, the, the again, the, the purpose of the, of, of what Matthew's doing with all these materials in terms of borrowing and reshaping traditions is to shape a discourse that not only defines Christian discipleship in terms of continuing the ministry of Jesus by preaching the same message he did and doing the same things he did, mm-hmm. but also it defines the discipleship of his community in terms of sharing the same fate mm-hmm. as Jesus. And we, we saw this uh, in the summary statement in Matthew 24, 10.24 last week, uh, a, di- a disciple is not above the teacher nor a slave above mm-hmm. the master, which itself is reshaped by Matthew from the Q tradition. Mm-hmm. And all you have to do is compare Luke 6.40 on that, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and see how the di- it's used in a very different context in Luke. And so in all of this, Matthew is shifting the focus from the situation of Jesus and his disciples to the situation of his community after Easter which was indeed, as we talked about right. last week, one of rejection and persecution. Of course, right. right? Yeah. The, the, the gospel traditions about Jesus setting family members against each other 
uh, which again, I'm, I'm sounding like a broken record, are reshaped from the apocalyptic mm-hmm. discourse, point us to the pressure that Matthew's community was facing at times from their own families as they sought to be faithful disciples of Jesus. And this leads to the implication that um, while taking up one's cross, that's part of the language mm-hmm. that we talked about exactly. last week, can refer metaphorically to the sacrifices one must face in order to follow Jesus, uh, primarily in terms of sacrificing one's own self-interest. Right. And, and, and here I would refer us, again, looking at the parallel, Luke 9, 23, you know, we're all familiar with, if anyone would come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their crosses and follow me. Mm-hmm. Well, in Luke, it's take up their one's cross daily. Mm-hmm. Well, obviously, you can't <laughs> suffer martyrdom daily, right? Exactly. So this is obviously metaphorical for right. the sacrifice of, 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 of sacrificing your own self-interest for the sake of following Jesus. But in the case of Matthew's community, I think we should see all of this as pointing to a setting in which some of the believers not only suffered the loss of their families, but also faced death, mm. a little, literal death, yeah. likely either by stoning or in some cases, perhaps literally by being crucified by the Roman authorities. Right. And wow, you know, and, I and, think it's hard to be encouraged to continue in this. I mean, and again, we're modern day people who don't tend to be, but this is such a, this is this wonderful encouragement, right, right, to this community. Well, and and you know, as as I mentioned last week, Gene Boring says, if this if this version of Christianity is foreign to us, then perhaps that has something to say about how we have reshaped Christianity. Absolutely, yeah, Absolutely. because this was their reality. This was, yeah. And, you know, I realize we might think, wait a minute, now was crucifixion really all that common? Yes, it was. Uh, in yeah. fact, Pontius Pilate is recounted as having crucified 800 yeah. people at yeah. one time. Okay. So, you know, this was not just a, a um, you know, a one-off Jesus crucifixion was not a one-off thing. No, this was a regular yeah. well, occurrence. Well, they used to line up the, you know, the Apian way with people crucified. And right. Sometimes they'd burn it after that and right. they would make it, you know, right. and light people up. So it was a really brutal practice right. of the Roman and Empire. It was, it was yeah. something that yeah. it was, it was, it was something that they used a lot. They did use it a lot. To suppress any kind of dissent. Exactly. Yeah. And so this, you did, you were at risk and, they had no problem doing it, right. carrying it out. So, right. Right. Yeah. So our gospel lesson for today, we finally get to the three verses we, we look at hardly constitute a lesson, it seems to me. But anyway, this is our gospel lesson for today. Follows up on this situation of suffering and sacrifice and perhaps even martyrdom with words of assurance. Whoever welcomes you welcomes me and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me in Matthew ten forty. And I think we should note that this you know, right at the outset, that this saying of Jesus not only belongs to material that Matthew and Luke have in common, although, again, not surprisingly, Matthew's version is different from the one in mm-hmm. Luke ten sixteen. There is also a similar statement in John. Mm-hmm. John thirteen twenty says, "Very truly I tell mm-hmm. you, whoever receives one whom I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent mm-hmm. me." Now, the wording in the Greek is different mm. than than in Matthew. And, and the wording in, in Luke is different because in the wording in Luke, is, it's more those who reject you reject me, right? Mm-hmm. So, it's, so right. There's, there are three different versions, uh, you know, in, in, in Greek, three different versions of, of a similar saying. But 
um, I think the, I think the the parallel in with between one of the synoptics and John at this point is is somewhat unusual. You don't see a lot of these very clear parallels of Jesus' mm-hmm. sayings between the synoptic gospels and John. They're not unheard of, but they're not common. And so, you know, it raises the question whether John has been influenced by Matthew, Davies, and Allison in their three volume commentary. Uh, say this is almost certain, mm. which I find <laughs> interesting, or whether perhaps both Q and John were drawing on an earlier tradition, perhaps mm. translating from Aramaic in different ways. And interesting. I, of course, me and my oral history mindset wonders to what extent was this part of the tradition is being passed on, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, in you know, the question is, were there? I mean, Jesus obviously, uh, most of Jesus' sayings would have been. In, exactly. given in Aramaic. Yeah, I think yeah. there were some of the gospel sayings that were had to be in Greek. Absolutely, yeah. Because the 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 play on words between Peter and and Rock that only works in Greek. It doesn't work right. in Aramaic. Right. Okay. So, but um um uh you know, um yeah, we don't know. I mean, this is one of those unknowns about the way the Gospels were formed. Right. We don't know what was in the background here, but it's fascinating. Because it like I said, it you is. don't normally see these very clear yeah. parallels yeah. in Jesus' sayings between John and the Synoptic Gospels. Right. So when you right. do, you kind of have to pay attention. Right. Oh, oh a- absolutely. I, yeah. I wonder, you know, <laughs> I'm going off on a tangent, but I, I do wonder too. As I said, my I, I get... I'm 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 a trained historian, which is written records, but that there's such I'm I'm in such an age when I study that we know so much is transmitted orally. Oh, absolutely, and, so and that's what's true for the Gospels as well. So, how many of these sayings were the kinds of things that people memorize? I mean, we memorize stuff today, I think, and that people are saying and have become ingrained into the fabric of what it is to be a Christian. I think I think that that oral transmission played just as much a role in the formation of the gospels as you know we believe that q was a written document because of the word for word agreement right that doesn't happen with oral tradition right doesn't happen but but um so i think i would say that oral transmission played just as much a a role as early written documents Mm -hmm. probably more so in the earliest tradition right it was Mm -hmm. all oral exactly very early on until q Probably wrote it down, right? And and whenever that happened, I think it was fairly early. But but when whenever that happened, then then that became a source for um for um both Mark, Matthew right. and Luke. Except, now some some people think that um um both Matthew and Luke had their own unique written right, sources. Right. I'm I'm not so sure about that because I I think I think they could have had access to oral tradition. Um, you know, right. like like as in this case where well, you've got this you have got this connection between Matthew and John. Right. But the wording in Greek is different. It's different. But even though in English in the English the sentiment is the same, right? So in English it's it reads the same. Right. In Greek the wording is different. Right. And so um um that suggests oral tradition to me. I, I that's that I guess that's what I'm getting at. That mm-hmm. suggests oral tradition. Which, yep. Yep. And something that was important enough to early Christians that they were yep. saying they, that to one another. They, they were encouraging right. well, each think other about it. with this. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Yeah. That's a huge statement. Exactly. And yeah. and think about that. But okay, I'm liking this 
And I'm liking this as an encouragement that Christians are using mm. with one another because we just had this apocalyptic discourse, which mm. for modern day Christians is so not encouraging right. that it takes us away from what Matthew is after. And here we see it again. Well, with the whole context yeah. of suffering and 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 the, the kinds of things they had to suffer at that time, mm-hmm. you know, that's that's very not discouraging for us, exactly. right? We can have a hard time putting ourselves in those shoes. Absolutely. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, so I think part of the reason why they hung on to this saying is because the implication in this verse is that there will be some, and perhaps even many, who would welcome or more literally receive those who came proclaiming the gospel and caring for the least among them. Uh, and I think about the parable of the sower. Right. Mm-hmm. Some seed falls on the yep. on the path. Some seed falls in the stony ground. Some seed falls in the thorny ground. Some seed falls on the good soil, and, and the fruit that's borne by the good soil, you know, is so extraordinary right. that it far outweighs the the loss of seed sown in the other places that did right. not bear fruit. Right. Right. Now here, the verb decomai conveys both a nuance. I think it conveys both the nuance of welcoming the Christians engaged in the mission of Christ by extending hospitality to them as well as the notion of receiving the message about Jesus by responding in faith. And we see that in the use of the word decamai, for example, in Mark 10, 15, because it's used for receiving the kingdom of God. Uh, and in, in Acts and in First in Thessalonians especially, it's used uh, of receiving the word Mm-hmm. or receiving the word of God. And, and mm-hmm. in First Thessalonians, Paul's talking about the proclaimed gospel as okay. the word yep. or the yep. word of God, okay? Yep. And so, so decomai conveys, but it also has this notion of welcoming the, the Christians engaged in mission by extending hospitality to them. So there's both. Whoever receives you by extending hospitality to you and by responding to the gospel with faith and also receives me, and whoever receives me mm-hmm. receives the one who sent me. So tell me more about this idea about receiving and welcoming. Yeah. Now, you know, as I mentioned, not, not only was this a huge encouragement to the persecuted believers of Matthew's community, but also there's a pretty significant claim being made here, right? The, the, the assurance that those who received or welcomed the missionaries would be receiving Jesus and in so doing would be receiving the one who sent Jesus, right. clearly implying God, not, all, not only offers, I think, another assurance that they will not be carrying out their ministry alone. In other words, right. the risen Christ and God, the Spirit, will be with them. But it also makes clear that their work is the work of Jesus himself. They're representing Jesus himself. And more than that, mm-hmm. the believers not only went out as representatives of Jesus, Jesus, but the claim is that Jesus was representing right. God, which is a huge Christological right. claim. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's huge. Yeah. I wish I would have looked at Calvin right there to see how often he used it. I didn't go that way at this time, but yeah, 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 yeah. that would have been a Calvin pull out for sure. And I hear Davies and Allison say it this way, behind the ever-changing faces of the preachers of the gospel, there stands the Son of God himself, and behind him God the Father. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously... I or any other preacher of the gospel, any other person engaged in ministry could take that and it could become a real stumbling block in the sense of arrogance, right? Right, right. But I think if you approach this from the standpoint of, of you know, recognizing, you know, having a healthy uh, appreciation of yourself as a minister of the gospel, I think it can become a powerful encouragement 
Yes. That, you know, I, I agree. Week in, week out, no matter what response you get, wherever you're preaching the gospel, right. behind that stands the Son of God, and behind him stands God the Father. Right. And, and that's an assurance, I think, to us right. that, you know, we're not just doing this on our own, but Jesus, right. the Lord, the risen Lord, is yes. working th- yes. through us through and us. God mm-hmm. the Father as well. You know, it reminds me of, I was at uh, the Festival of Homiletics, about, the one about a year ago in Denver, and one of the one of the preachers got up, and I think she saw this very large crowd, and she stopped, she said, I, I am finding myself a little nervous, and I would like to pray now and ask for some mm-hmm. focus. But it was such a beautiful moment because reminding us that she's a vehicle for God's We're work. We're all human, yeah. And, and I just really love that because it can be a place where you start to celebrate the preacher as opposed to mm-hmm. the word coming through them. And so uh, it well, was... And that's always the case in absolute, any kind of situation where someone is. is standing up and exactly. preaching, right? I know. Well, that's and then a how temptation many, to avoid. And in how many people are... We know this is true. You, you hear about how, how good of a preacher somebody is yeah. and, and, and instead of how God is working through exactly. that person with the voice that they have been given. It's a, and, and, and frankly, it's not just preaching, but it's any kind of discipleship. Yep, so, that's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. So then the following verses elaborate, I think, on this verse, Matthew 10, 40. And the first statement, whoever welcomes a prophet in the name of a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever welcomes a righteous person in the name of a righteous person will receive the reward of the righteous in verse 41. That is unique to Matthew's gospel. There is nothing like it in the rest of the gospel tradition. And to my Mm. knowledge, not canonical nor non-canonical. Wow. There's nothing like this in the rest of the gospel tradition. So this is really a highlight verse for Matthew. Yeah. yeah. And so then the rest of the statement, whoever gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones in the name of a disciple, truly I tell you, none of these will lose the reward in verse 42, has a close parallel in Mark 9, 41. Mm -hmm. And again, as we've seen throughout this missionary discourse, Matthew weaves together traditions from Mark and from Q and from his unique source to convey the message of challenge, warning, and assurance Mm -hmm. to those who would answer the call to carry on. Jesus ministry it, you know I'm just as we're thinking about this verse and these things just the the positive tone of, of Matthew mm-hmm. here and and really how he ends too and mm-hmm. it, there's this oh, yes mm-hmm. um with it that now I'm thinking about Mark who is you know <laughs> leaving us on the edge well Mark has Mark also has the parable of the sower as well well right? it does correct so, I mean that, and, and Mark has Mark has actually Mark has reshaped the apocalyptic discourse in his gospel to con- to include a great commission that's true so that's true you know so the gospel will be so preached be to all so, the nations so it shouldn't be so hard on mark but yeah. yet this is different yeah this is different yeah. this <laughs> matthew moves all of that front and center by creating this missionary discourse in the middle of his his narrative of jesus galilee yeah, i mean I, as i'm thinking about listening to this and i'm thinking about being maybe in matthew's uh, Matthew's congregation or Matthew's uh, time and, and thinking of how I might hear this and how I might uh, be fearful. I, 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 I think this softens that there's a terror, there's mm-hmm. very much a terrifying sense of, mm-hmm. of just go out and do this, but God is with you in mm-hmm. this. And this is the call. This is your purpose for life. And, and there, it, it has a very, um, I don't know, it has a well, very... Well, and while there are some who are going to reject you, there are there are some and perhaps even many who are going to receive yeah. 
the word, you know, receive right. you as representatives right. of Christ and as and as ministers mm-hmm. of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Now Matthew's reference in these in these verses to prophets, to the righteous, and to the little ones, all of which are unique to Matthew's gospel. Right? This is this is mm-hmm. these references are not found in the gospel in the parallel parallels. This has given rise to speculations about different groups within his community, and some have suggested this points to a primitive kind of church order where the prophets serve as itinerant preachers and teachers, the righteous serve the mission in some other capacity, either itinerant or perhaps as local leaders, and the little ones are, are seen as ordinary or settled mm-hmm. believers, in other, the, the, in other words, those who stay home. And you can see, for example, in... in um, in Matthew eighteen six and the parallels Mark nine forty two, these little ones who believe in me. Mm-hmm. So that's a phrase that Jesus will use. The little ones refer to, to, to believers. Um, it's not clear whether we're meant to see these terms though as distinguishing between those who went on the road and those who stayed at home. Mm-hmm. I think that's something we should see. Uh, and in fact, one of the primary motivations for these statements in Matthew is to ensure that the missionary discourse applies not only to those members of the community who actively engaged in the mission, but also to those who stayed at home, mm. right? Because those who um, uh, welcome, right? Those, mm-hmm. who, those who are giving the welcome uh, to the prophet or to the righteous person, those who are giving even a cup of cold water to the little ones because they are... Mm-hmm. disciples of Jesus, you know, um, um, you know, I don't think we're meant to see any of these terms as distinguishing between those who went out in an itinerant ministry and those who stayed at home. Um, and, and so the idea is that whether by traveling from place to place or by staying in a settled residence, all members of the community have a share mm-hmm. in the mission, even if it's only, and this is the language of Matthew's gospel, only, I, I, yes, I picked up on that. Only yeah. sharing a, a cup of cold water, mm-hmm. you know, even that constitutes a sharing in in the mission. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things I've always th- thought about this passage is it's really easy to get caught up in the language of reward here, and I think that leads us to a dead end. Mm-hmm. I don't think we should we should. Well, what is the reward of a prophet? I don't think that's the point here. I think the the point is that both those who engage actively in the mission and those who support the missionaries by extending hospitality are carrying out Jesus' ministry as his faithful disciples. Yeah, yeah, a- a- excellent. And and I I just worked on this myself, and and. Um, yes, I, uh, um, I don't always, I don't, I, I don't preach every week right now. So I don't, I don't always go into the, the Greek myself. And, and so looking at this, I was just taking that reward caught me by surprise, but mm-hmm. th- I, I kind of came by that. I don't think that's the, I don't think that's the crux of this. I don't either. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Thanks. Hi, friends. We're back, and we are going to take up uh, where I left off with the focus on the Christian community and how they carry out the mission of Jesus and see how the Reformers um, uh, dealt with that. So, Christy, uh, uh, tell us what you found. Yeah. So I today I wanted to focus on discipleship in the Protestant Reformation. And so I'm treating this analysis a little differently. Um so we know that in this missionary discourse, Jesus is sending out those uh, disciples to spread the good news, cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out the demons. In other words, in Matthew, Jesus is sending them to preach and to heal. What is interesting is that in the modern world, 
we tend to think of the role of disciples as merely to spread the word if, and preach it. And I see this a lot. You know, I see these missionary efforts of, oh, we'll just go out. We're just going to, we're going to preach to people. You go door to door. You go door to door. You know, the evangelicube kind of mentality. People just have to hear the word. Um, it's, but, of course, those of us in, in the Reformed tradition know, it's in Calvin, that we're reminded of a corporate church, that we must do all these things as the body of the church. And as we know, he identifies different people who will be disciples in unique ways, ministers, deacons, teachers, elders. And as we know, all are called to ministry as part of the body of Christ. Well, and as I tried to put it, you know, the, the call was not only to extend Jesus' ministry by proclaiming the gospel, right. but also by showing care to the ones exactly. who needed it. And, and I think, I just, I see division in that and sometimes in the church today, mm-hmm. especially in the missionary efforts, you yep. know? Oh, I and know. how many people do I know have this kind of negative view of, of mission because they think they're just going to go out and knock on the door. Or, you know? or evangelism. You know, we yeah. think of evangelism as primarily trying to convert people. And, exactly. and you know, I, I hear a lot of people in our context saying, well, you know, we, we just, we want to demonstrate our love for people without words. Well, it takes both, exactly. right? It you takes you both. have to love the people, first of all. You have to care right. about them. You have to care about them enough to engage them enough to, to create a relationship with them. Right. You have to care about them enough to find out what they need and to help meet those needs. And you also use words. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> words are not optional. <laughs> right, right. And, and you know, uh, in our context, we're so averse to that door-to-door evangelistic kind of uh, arm twisting that we, right. that we, that we, we, we think we all. don't want to use words at all exactly it's better not to use words at exactly. all exactly i i think we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. i there. agree i i agree so i wanted to look today at how um the first call of the disciples is played out in an in instructions of followership in the history of the church in other words how did people follow christ as as the church um as the church again developed and of course particularly in the 16th century. Right. So I'll be looking at these instructions via our book of confessions, primarily those Reformation-era confessions. Of course, in Scripture, we read about the many men and women who serve it and their actions as the church becomes institutionalized. However, the true work of the church, praying, teaching, and healing, came to be embodied in in, in the subset of Western Christendom as those who pray. In other words, the priests. Right. Yeah. The, the priests and, and monks and mm-hmm. nuns, all those people had a certain category of that those was their who job. were the true disciples, right? They were the ones who were, care- yeah. Care- they were the, there was this, li- yeah, there was, a, there was like a multi-level uh, view of discipleship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. And we've talked about that before. And while this gave a clear direction for priests and even those in holy orders, it meant that the rest of the flock did not really have a Christian vocation other to thrive within their own estate, to work or to fight. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Medieval Christianism was really set up this way, right? you know, um, but with the priesthood of all believers, and that's a specific Christian call on all believers to respond, we have a change in how one follows God. And thus the confessions provide a base for expectations in Christian discipleship. Yeah. So in our book of confessions, we have the two ancient confessions, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. And then we jump to the Reformation era creeds that are specifically reformed. Um, now these are not, these, these Reformation era creeds are not the first creedal statements of the 16th century. Um, of course, the first of the magisterial reform, reforms was those under 
Luther. And our first formal Reformation creed is the Augsburg Confession. Mm -hmm. Now, even though the Augsburg Confession was the first formal confession, discipleship documents were very much part of the Reformation, beginning with Luther's freedom of a Christian, where he argues a Christian, quote, is perfectly free, Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is dutiful servant of all, subject to all. Yeah, um, yeah, we, we've talked about how those pamphlets kind of served as, as um, kind of cate- almost catechetical statements, you know, instructive, instructional statements mm-hmm, as mm-hmm. well. And to give you a date on, on those, those are, that's one of the tracks of 1520, and this Augsburg Confession is going to um, come out in 1530. Yeah, so, that's very early, yeah. Mm-hmm, it's very early. So many of the one differences that I see between the ancient creeds Nicene Apostles, and the Reformation-era creeds is not just a statement about what we believe, but how we respond Mm -hmm. as followers. Mm -hmm. In other words, it is in the Reformation that belief and action are claimed as part of true discipleship, at least in the formal writing of a creed. Well, you have a concern not only for orthodoxy or right belief, but also orthopraxy or right action. Exactly. Now, I don't want to leave the Roman Catholic Church out of this. They, too, will adopt Mm -hmm. this position in the Reformation, in the the Catholic Counter-Reformation. Sure. Um, so that's kind of important to know that it's not just a Protestant thing. It's it's really an era thing about what it means to be Christian. Well, and interesting, I'd say, interestingly, I'd say that one of the distinctions between the Protestant churches of today and the Catholic churches of today is that that aspect of right practice being a part of right faith is still very strong in the Catholic church, uh-huh. whether or not people actually right. do it right whereas it's kind of fallen by the wayside in the protestant yeah, isn't that interesting yeah. yeah yeah so in a way the confessions themselves reflect the core of reformation theology that that works would stem from belief and so this is again now I, I'm, I'm focusing back on on our on our protestants mm-hmm. works would stem from belief would come out of belief as they are tied directly to the believing in the very doctrine of the church this is part of the reason i think that the new confessions tie action to the belief itself. Quote, that faith is bound to yield good fruits. Mm. That's from the Augsburg Confession. The question for Luther was that if we are called to read the Bible and we should respond to its call, that discipleship would come out of it. Now, it did not. Right. And this led to a series of catechisms and eventually to the first formal confession. I think that's interesting because, you know, as you said, we've talked about before that Luther thought that if people just had the Bible, they could they would respond to it. And mm-hmm. so it sounds like when that didn't happen, then he realized, oh, they need some instruction about what they're reading. Yes, exactly. And how do we read it? What to hear? And that makes sense to us today, mm-hmm. you know, um, about how to walk people through the scripture i mean yeah it's it is it, we're going through today how people might read it so one thing out of it but here we get in matthew this reframing of this yeah. as, as, I, as i tried to ask you earlier does this apocalyptic distorts has any truth of its own well mm-hmm. if you don't have it with a context if you don't know how to mm-hmm. understand it it's right. kind of frightening and then, and so the so then the catechisms and the and the confession actually provide a context a framework within which to read the mm-hmm. bible mm-hmm. and i think that's true been true always i mean mm-hmm. that was true i i think that was that's been that was true you know in terms of the the apostles creed and the nicene creed mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. they gave crucial a context mm-hmm. for people to be able to, or a crucial framework within which right. for people to read the right. Bible. But I think that's always been true of confessional uh, literature that it's intended right. to, to help right. people um, 
put it in a framework to, to help them understand. Correct, correct. And I don't want to pretend that there's no um, discipleship literature prior to. <clears throat> Oh, of course. Right. I mean, this was within, I mean, they had all kinds of catechisms in the Roman Catholic tradition. But in terms of stuffing it into creedal statements, mm-hmm. this then is, is a u- unique Reformation thing. Right. Um, right. And, of course, and then our tradition, which has this book of confessions, right. um, which is, I think, really cool. But a lot of well, us ignore the, the Reformation, and ones. of course, in the in the in the Roman Catholic Church, they have the 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 whole tradition of the Church Fathers, right? Exactly that they re- that they exactly. rely on. But that's a vast tradition, exactly. Right, and their 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 creedal statements are basically the Apostles' Creed right. and the Nicene exactly. Creed. That's it, exactly. And, and so you know you've got this vast con, you know literature that becomes then the framework within which you're supposed to read it. Well, how's the average person supposed to? condense that right right so the reform the reformation era exactly confessions right uh, uh, try to do that for for the individual and we have m- many of them as i obviously we don't have the augsburg confession but that is the cornerstone of like the lutheran book of mm-hmm. uh, book of concord for right. example so there are other confessions that are written throughout the reformation the ones in our book of confessions are those that are uniquely reformed mm-hmm. um statements so right. um so one of the observations we can make about 16th century faith and the confessions that deal with discipleship is the relationship of the individual to the faith. And we inherited this language today, but as we know, many people view their faith as compartmentalized apart mm-hmm. from the secular world. You know, it's like I have church, I have bowling league, I have, <laughs> right? And and we even... Well, and I think that's part of where we get this whole thing where where right practice is not connected with right belief. Uh, exactly. Yeah. It's not true for the 16th century. And so we see in these descriptions, this embodiment within the context of one being called as one called in faith. Discipleship in the Reformation is central to the priesthood of all believers and becomes embedded into one's daily life. So, for example, in the Scots Confession, which is the earliest of the um, Reformed confessions that's in our in our in our book, and if you if if you've tried to use it before, you you realize it's 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 a little. Um, <laughs> It's it's not as complete as some of the later ones, and it tends to have a very, um, uh, a very what's the word I want to polemical use? edge. Yeah, polemical edge, <laughs> a, a polemical edge, and um, kind of a what's the word I'm looking for? Um, uh, kind of a political edge, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. For example, the call of the Christian is to serve God and neighbor. Mm-hmm. So. Then, right in the confession. Now, the Reformed tradition goes even further, reflecting on how one true church, that is, those who are called into the body of the church, those believers who respond to God's word, rightly preached. In other words, those who are elect, right? Mm -hmm. What I love next, however, is the relationship between the civil magistrate and discipleship. Written into the 16th century confessions is the idea that one called into the service of the state is indeed responding to God's call on their life, and therefore the state should be obeyed. (laughs) That's horrifying to modern people. Right. right? This this is so foreign to us. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) as we would adhere to a separation of church and state. But the Scots Confession, again, is, quote, we confess and acknowledge that empires, kingdoms, dominions, and cities are appointed and ordained by God, the powers and authorities in them, emperors and empires, kings and their realms, dukes and princes in their commissions and magistrates in cities are ordained by God's holy ordinance for the 
for the manifestation of his own glory and for the good and well-being of all men. Well, and, and in one way, the Scots Confession is simply summarizing Romans 13. Yeah. Here, right? Right, 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 There's right. Just simply right. summarizing it yeah. and just kind of slapping it on to right. the 16th century, right? Exactly, exactly. And, of course, that's, that's what they did, right? right? I mean, there was always important to, you know, have your biblical proofs, but how they how they viewed it and here was but i think what's important here is this was very much how you saw the world you, right. you saw that there was legitimacy in these rulerships this begins to start to shift towards the end of the 16th century and of course but still hangs on and we end up with kind of two different two different trajectories if you've taken western civilization you get to, to those who believe mm-hmm. the divine right of kings and mm-hmm. the movement towards absolutism and or the movement towards um, um, a, a democratic type society right. where, where um, um, the rule of the people. And so you kind of get this bleed out from there. But we're still talking about divine right yeah. leadership yeah. in the early 20th century. Yeah. And, of course, in some of our theocratic kind of states today. Even right? in the 21st century, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. But in, in terms of like the West. So yeah. um, these have this great great overtones for our history. Mm-hmm. So furthermore, um, um, it's their duty to uphold the purity of the faith. Now, another aspect of the 16th century confessions is the emphasis on the Ten Commandments right, right. and that discipleship recognizes adherence to these commandments. We've talked about this before as well. Yeah. But I hope you are seeing this interesting relationship between obedience and vocational calling, which led to support an early modern concept of rulership. Mm. So the complexity of this is that in being about the question of just rule and who can claim to right. be God's chosen ruler. Well, because the reality is that, <laughs> unfortunately, some of those who are emperors and kings and dukes and princes and you know magistrates, not all of them exercise their rule, the, the, their roles justly. Exactly. You know, exactly. Ma- many of them exactly. have exercised their right. roles unjustly and corruptly and for right. the sake of their own welfare. So then you begin to get some of the, the writings, which really flip us into kind of modern texts. Of, can we can we get rid of an unjust ruler? Mm-hmm. Um, can any, which is the gist of the Declaration of Independence, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And and so we move we move through all these different pieces there. And can we even um, can we even can we even just war theories and all these mm-hmm. other pieces of when power is abused? Mm-hmm. And so this is really important part of moving from an early modern context to a modern context. And the early modern context was still this sense of divine right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, as opposed to the modern context where you have separation of church mm-hmm, and state. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we can see immediately how it led to political division and eventual division of church and state, the Marxist modern era. Now, I don't want to focus on this, but it is part of the reality of 16th century theology that shaped our tradition and, in my opinion, necessitates why we must have a division of church and state today. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm pointing this out because we're getting more and more voices in our polarized political state right now that are trying to bring in things that um, have, are giving too much power to oh, authoritarian leadership yeah, yeah exactly absolutely. so um we have to be really aware it's not just authoritarian because 
you've got atheist states that right. are, have that power. Oh but, yeah, right. But I'm right, really, right. I'm, I'm really kind of, I'm really kind of leaning on um, positions where, uh, where people are using their religious um, affiliation yep. to put forth, um, to basically claim one religious truth over another. And therefore, are no longer allowing for freedom. Well, well and freedom. and it's, it seems to me not only to claim one religious truth over over all others, but also to claim one political truth. What? Yes, over all that's others. embodied within that Christian. Right. Their their Christian dogma. Their religious right? dogma. Yeah. 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 yeah absolutely. That's, yeah. That's the challenge. So, yeah. returning to discipleship. The Protestants all emphasize the priesthood of all believers as the backbone to discipleship. Quote, Christ's apostles call all who believe in Christ priests, but not on account of an office, but because all the faithful, having been made kings and priests, we are able to offer up spiritual sacrifices to God through Christ. Therefore, the priesthood and the ministry are very different from one another. For the priesthood, as we have just said, is common to all Christians, not so as a ministry. Nor have we abolished the ministry of the church because we have repudiated the papal priesthood from the church of Christ. Of course, as I said later, it is Calvin who will... Dec- who would delineate specific offices within the church roles that are called to service um, um, will fill um, uh, the, called the service based on scripture. And I think it is interesting that this is a shift from this medieval concept of discipleship being embodied in the Roman Catholic church versus the call on all believers. Well, and again, the idea of the medieval concept is that only the priests and those in right. the holy orders right. are the ones who carry out, who, who are really responsible to carry out all right. of Jesus teachings and, and, and ordinary believers just show exactly. up to church once a year. Exactly. This <laughs> is about, a response to to discipleship by all mm-hmm. who believe in mm-hmm. Christ, and that to me emphasizes a great, great equality within the Christian realm. Which, which still, you know, we 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 say we believe in the ministry of every member, right? Today, exactly, yeah. exactly, yeah. So um, that's. <laughs> As long as that is, that is just a mere scratch of the surface of the kind of depth we could go into with ana- mm-hmm. analyzing this. And, um, but I think it gives you at least kind of this paradigmatical shift that happens, and yet we're still founded in that Reformation era. And so I think we hear ourselves in that as well as I'm hoping you're hearing how we're different. And this is why you can't have a church that goes back and tries to base itself on the Westminster standards as being the Mm -hmm. way to run the church because Mm -hmm. it doesn't make sense historically. Well, because the Westminster standards were written for the 17th century. Exactly. And and we live in the 21st century. Exactly. But I keep hearing <laughs> you that. You can't just slap the 17th century onto no, the 21st century. But we keep doing But there are I groups know. that keep doing that. And so it's Well, one there of are those people, there are groups of people who think that you just take the Bible and you apply it directly Absolutely. to the 21st century without any kind space. of any kind yeah. of cultural or or any kind of contextual, you know, uh, interpretation exactly. or filter. Yeah. Exactly. And it, these things don't make sense without understanding the historical context and Mm -hmm. understanding really, if you will, the the progression of history. And when we look at, when we look at our faith in terms of a a reformed tradition that continues to reform because our history continues to move forward, then we have, we can make a little bit more sense out of it. Yeah. Sounds good. Thanks. Thanks, Christy.
Hi, everyone. We're back. And we were talking in our break about this passage and just, you know, these three little verses. And I'm, I'm prepared. I've been preparing this one for a little while. And, you know, I kind of giggle because I think I'm just going to jump right in. And I, taking this in terms of the three little verses and trying to craft something out of it doesn't make sense. And I think, but yet, I think a lot of people will do that. Mm-hmm. I think, A, it's partly because we're busy pastors and because there it sits and we just construct something out of it. And I think we do it a disservice because as you pointed out, we can't really understand this without really looking at this, this broad piece of the missionary discourse. So I I think the challenge is, um, you know, how are we, what's our requirement to be true to scripture, you know, and true to this attempt of the revised common lectionary to provide us something to preach on. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we've talked about this a little bit before, I think in an episode of, you know, how do we faithfully preach and teach, you know, the gospel Mm -hmm. of Matthew, for example. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, and I think it relates as well. How do we faithfully apply reform principles Mm -hmm. from the confessions in the 21st century, uh, you know, and because both of those things, both the both the Reformed confessions as well as the Gospel of Matthew, were written and addressed to very different situations and very different times. Mm-hmm. And you know, I've always been of the opinion, you know, I I've told when I've taught, you know, when I taught biblical hermeneutics, you know, I've basically taught Bible interpretation, both class and then in my in my, so in my second year Greek class, we had a whole about. A half of a semester we spent on just going from the Greek text to a sermon. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, one of the key principles for me is unless you can understand or have some kind of sense of what Matthew is trying to communicate to his community, you really have no way to faithfully proclaim that message in the 21st century, right. because you have to know what Matthew was, at right. least have a sense of what Matthew right. was trying to do. Right. What was Matthew trying to accomplish with his community in order to try to bring that over into a, in an appropriate way in this setting? So my question is, do the words as printed and sitting on the paper have an automatic truth that we can just pull out from it? Well, I think that's a loaded question. That <laughs> wasn't nice of me. But that's the reason I asked this... I, I mean, just, obviously, there's some, there's some, there's some verses right. that seem to just stand on their own mm-hmm. and and don't seem to need a whole lot of historical mm-hmm. interpretation. That's not true in Matthew 10. Ah, I think that's an important thing that you said there. Some do stand on their own, and we memorize mm-hmm. them, and they become central. But others require us to put them into the context. He has shown you what is what does the Lord require of you. Mm-hmm. What is right and what does the Lord require of you? But to, to, to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your mm-hmm. God. You know, we don't need a lot of context to be able to right. understand that, right? right? But as I've tried to point out in the last three weeks, you can't really even grasp what Matthew is right. trying to accomplish unless right. one of your tools is a gospel synopsis. Right. Because you have to be able to, you have to have it in front of you to see, mm-hmm. oh, Matthew is changing things a little bit here. Wonder why he's doing that. Oh, the focus seems to be more on Matthew's own community and not on what the 12 were doing. 
And that really, really opens the door to be able to see, oh, Matthew is really trying to encourage his community to extend the ministry of Jesus the way the 12 did. Right. And, and, and hey, guess what? It's not just the people who are going out and actively taking part in that. It's also those who support them. Right. I, this, this is coming off a conversation I had this week. Of, I don't know this woman's background, but she found out I'm a minister and she was very interested in, in talking with me in the middle of Walgreens. And, <laughs> and um, but it was, wow, every week my, my, my preacher gets up, he opens the Bible and he just is going through the verse and he's, and almost as if the words themselves have some mm-hmm. automatic truth that pulls out yep. that they can talk about. Yep. And I'm like, and, and so it's kind of a hard discussion to get in the middle of to explain the broader process of biblical interpretation. But I think there's a lot of people out there that expect us to have the truth. I mean, what if you pull out that apocalyptic stuff without any reference to knowing it's apocalyptic stuff and you try to, I mean, it's, it's, it just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't. And unfortunately, whether it's because people are busy, whether it's because they don't realize what they're doing, whether it's because they don't know any better, whether it's because they come at it from a naive biblicism. You know, there are all kinds of reasons why people do it, but there are a lot of people who just want to take the words of Matthew's gospel and slap them right on to the 21st century. Mm -hmm. Great example of that is the Bruderhof Gemeinde, the the Bruderhof communities. Um, They were founded by Eberhard Arnold. Yeah, so the Bruderhof communities were founded by um, an Anabaptist Christian named Eberhard Arnold in Germany in 1920. And their organizing principle was that this was going to be a community that was going to be shaped entirely by the Sermon on the Mount. Well, as, as laudable as that is, you know, again, you know, Matthew's gospel was written to a community in a specific time and place. Mm-hmm. And to think you can just lift that up, the Sermon on the Mount even, that you can just lift mm-hmm. that up and slap it onto the 21st century without any kind of uh, interpretive uh, contextualization, any kind of understanding of what Matthew was trying to accomplish mm-hmm. by presenting mm-hmm. the Sermon on the Mount, even the fundamental, associ- even the fundamental assumption that Matthew 5 to 7 was a sermon that Jesus gave, right? right We've talked about right. that before, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. that's likely not true, you know, right. but rather Matthew took the traditions about a sermon that Jesus gave and, and brought right. in other right. teachings that were thematically, they were topically related, right? right. To create this discourse, to create, the, because he's trying to demonstrate the fact, the, the image of Jesus as the authoritative teacher of the word of God. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, without taking all that into a case in, in, in consideration, you know, you really open up the door for some excess and some abuse, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. as, as laudable as it is to try to live by the Sermon on the Mount, you know, these communities tend to be kind of rigid. Yeah. You know, so right. a person like myself would not be welcome to live in one of these communities right. because I'm divorced. Right, right. 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 And so, and to you, me, that would take away 
from the other messages of Scripture, such as the grace, well, right? And, or and such as forgiveness, such as... Uh, I mean, even within the Sermon on the Mount, you've right. got this fundamental statement about your father, you know, is sends his son on the, on the good and the bad alike and sends the rain on the just and the unjust, you know? And you have this sense of God's God's prevenient grace, mm-hmm. right? And there's no, I mean, there's no room for that. And so that's an interpretive move in and of itself. Right. The assumption that you can just slap it straight onto the 21st century right. is a significant interpretive mood, and and you're you're putting you're putting a whole hermeneutic into there without even being aware of what you're doing, and exactly. it yeah. winds up twisting, and it's right. it so often winds up with a twisting of the gospel to suit whatever right. agenda you yet, are promoting. Many people that would do this process would blame would blame a modern scholarship approach. Mm. <laughs> uh, they would blame it. They would say the same thing against it. They would say, well, those people aren't reading the true words of the yeah, Bible. They don't, yeah. and, I mean, they don't me, believe the Bible. That's the, that's the claim, right? Right. Modern right. scholars don't even believe the Bible yeah. is true. Right. Well, you know, that, that's, that's, that's just, it, it's a, it's, it assumes a whole lot about how we read the Bible. Mm-hmm. And it assumes that just reading the Bible in the kind of naive biblical literalism is what it means to believe the Bible is true. And if you if you make any effort to try to compare Matthew chapter 10 with, you know, the way Mark and Luke recount this same event is somehow um, um, looking at it in a way which is unbelieving. You know, that's ridiculous. Because really, you know, so Paul says, you know, um, that, he, he, he commissions Timothy, you know, says that, you know, basically you're to do the work of ministry. And, and part of that is rightly, um, if I remember it from the King James Version, rightly dividing the word of truth. It's, mm-hmm. it's in the new RSV updated version, it's rightly explaining the word of truth, mm-hmm. right? Well, to me, just, just taking the Bible and, and just sort of naively assuming you can just slap it onto the 21st century, you're not doing that no. you're not rightly explaining the word of truth you're at not. all Mm-mm. you're making an interpretive move that is fraught with all kinds of pitfalls and is very right. open to to abuse exactly and, and to and to just you basically using the words of scripture as a mm-hmm. proof text to promote your own agenda but whereas you know taking the time to actually look at okay how is matthew using this stuff in comparison mm-hmm. with mark and luke oh matthew really is reshaping this in a way that He's not even interested in whether the 12 actually carried out the the instructions of Jesus. He's focusing more on the community. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, That's more consistent with, that's not, that's not an unbelieving approach to scripture. That is, I think, trying to be faithful and rightly explaining the word of truth. Well, and I think it, I think it gives us also, um, 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 now I'm not, now I'm not hunting, um, it, it, it gives us respect for our creation as thinking beings, too. Sure. And that we are encouraged to grapple with Scripture and to understand it and to process it. And we aren't doing that when we just look at it literally and blindly. That this is this this is partly of the, the brilliance of God's creation, mm-hmm. and that we are being encouraged to grow and to move. And it's through this Scripture and the reading it and and where our experience and our history all come to play in, in how we understand it. Well, and I, to me, I think it also has a, 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 a defective 
understanding of the Word of God. I agree. Right? I agree. Because from a reform perspective, we have the Word of God is the living Word mm-hmm. in Jesus. Right. Jesus fully embodies the Word of God in his life, right? right? right. We have the written Word. Right. We have the proclaimed Word. And it, it, it collapses a reformed doctrine of the Word of God completely into the written word. So all you do is just verbalize the words of Scripture and just kind of, um, just kind of um, um, create, you know, just give your, give your comments, give a running commentary on the words of the Bible because the Bible just kind of automatically, you know, applies. And it just collapses the concept of the word of God completely into the written right, word. Right. It doesn't take account of the living right. word. It doesn't take account of the proclaimed word. Right. It doesn't take account of the of the of the notion in Reformed theology that proclamation right. is a part of God's ongoing word right. to the community of faith itself. Right. 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 And 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 we need people who are committed to be to rightly explaining the word of truth in order for the people in our congregations right. to rightly hear right. the word of the lord in our sermons right 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 and 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 yet i think perhaps it's out of modesty perhaps it's just out of an, uh, a simplicity we just have we have we, we leave that aspect of proclamation as the word of god yeah. out i agree and and you know it's it's something of a historical naivete as well you know well the word of god was in the bible and then so that's it that's it right, and right. and there's no more everything that everything uh, i've had, had people say it to me well everything that 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 needs to be said has already been said or everything that needs to be known has already been known no, no. you know it, it was a it right. was a congregational minister i think who said god has yet more light and truth to break forth from exactly. his word and and we 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 need to take that seriously that that when we stand in the pulpit and we we are delivering these sermons, you know, that is a part of God's word, right? Absolutely, um, absolutely. Building up the community right. of faith. I absolutely, absolutely, and of course, if if you're doing your job right, my opinion, you're doing the historical background, and then you're looking mm. at how that the context, which is why it's so important. Not just to have um, a, a talking head come from a television trying to address mm-hmm. blanketly Christendom, but mm-hmm. rather to have these individual congregations with individual needs um, and individual communities. Right. I mean, and and the talking head. I, I I sometimes when I used to do chaplaincy in particular, I'd run into folks in a, in the hospital. Well, I listen to so and so on TV, right. and I'm like, that's not a Christian community. Right. That is not. That's a talking head who has no idea about the context of your particular life and ministry well and unfortunately more often than not those talking heads are doing just this they're approaching the bible with this naive biblicism absolutely this naive literalism and just you know assuming that whatever they read into the bible yeah. is what the bible means exactly well that's what it means to me well, okay, that's not the point. The point is, what did the author intend in the first place? What right. did the, in, you know, we say it's inspired. What did the inspired right. author, the one inspired by God in the first right. place, what did that person intend for it to say? And right. then 
how would God want you to convey that message in this cultural context? Right, right. That's the question, right. not what does it mean to me? Exactly. Well, and I keep <laughs> thinking about community in this, which is something the Scott actually yeah. picked up on, right? But it's like if you're at home watching on TV, and this mm-hmm. is actually a, a criticism, actually, for all of you still sitting at home and drinking your coffee during service, part of your response is in community, and that's yeah. being there present if you yeah. can be. Yeah, yeah, sure. All right. Thanks, <laughs> Thanks. Christy. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.